CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Georgia's Republican Attorney General calls for a tribute to MLK at Stone Mountain Park. A federal judge orders the release of grand jury testimony in the notorious 1946 lynchings in Monroe County. Governor Kemp prepares to honor a campaign promise to small business. Political Rewind starts now. Glad to have you all with us for Political Rewind today. we got a lot to talk about, so let's get right to our panel. Jim Galloway, who is the AJC's lead political writer, is uh, with us, as he is every Monday and uh, Friday. You read him in the Wednesday and Sunday editions of the newspaper. And, of course, everybody knows by now you oversee the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Every day. Every single day. Maybe t- take weekends off, maybe. Galloway wakes up in the morning and thinks, oh, my gosh, I've got a gaping hole to fill with political insider news. And then you fill it. And you do it. <laughs> Karen Owen uh, is back with us. She's a political science professor at West Georgia University. Thanks for coming in here today, Karen. My pleasure to be here. Dr. Andre Gillespie, who is, of course, political science professor at Emory University and the author of a new book on Barack Obama that she guarantees us is going to be published sometime in the next couple of weeks. March 1st. <laughs> okay. We're really looking forward to seeing uh, what you have to say uh, in that book, Andra. And we're really glad to welcome uh, the newly elected Attorney General of the state of Georgia, Chris Carr. Uh, Carr, of course, served as an appointed uh, official in that position, and, and you won your election in November, so congratulations and right. glad to have you here. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. We agreed during the, uh, as we talked before the show, we know the proper title is to call you General Carr. <laughs> you don't want us to call you that. I, I think the, uh, you know, coming from the Johnny Isaacson world, it's much better to, to just use <laughs> You had worked for him uh, on the Hill for a long time. That's right. I got to work for him. Very fortunate to work for him for 11 years. But when we, I was, I was saying the history of the title Attorney General is very interesting. It actually goes back to Middle English when the King of England needed a lawyer to represent him on matters of general concern. Yeah. And they just flipped the title to attorney general rather than general attorney. So, so it's an adjective, not it, a, it not a title. <laughs> and I, I appreciate it. It's very kind when people do it, but Chris is fine too. Well, let's start uh, with the fact that you, uh, you made some headlines in the last uh, couple of weeks because, to the best of my knowledge, you are the first statewide elected Republican official to come out and say that you're supportive of putting some sort of monument or tribute to Martin Luther King Jr. at Stone Mountain, long, long a park that has been known as a, a, a place that has honored the Confederacy. And you're open to the idea of the bell tower on top of the mountain itself. Talk, how did you come to that, and sure. where is this all headed? Uh, Bill, I'm, I'm a history buff. I love history, always have loved history since the time I was a little kid, Uh, but I'm a big believer in history by addition, not history by subtraction or deletion. We all have heard the adage, you're doomed to repeat history if if you forget it and that sort of thing. But I think, I truly think we are better off when we have more facts, 
when we have more information, we know more of the story. And as it relates to Dr. King, I was fortunate enough to be able to speak at the at the uh, King service just a few weeks ago, and and we are so fortunate to have him as a a son of Georgia and grew up just down the street. But I don't know why we would not recognize Stone Mountain's role in the single most important civil rights speech in American history. To me, it just it's something that I think we could and should do, and and helps add to the conversation. Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain and the other places that King mentioned in his speech. Um, one other quick question for you, and then I would love to see hear the panel uh, get involved in this conversation. Uh, did you decide this just independently on your own? Have you been talking to other Republican leaders? Have you started talking with the Stone Mountain uh, board, which had an opportunity to do something about a bell tower, for instance, on top of the mountain, and it kind of evaporated over a period of time? Well, it, and the idea was not mine. The idea came up before, and, and uh, I thought it was a good idea then. And but I wasn't in an elective office. I wasn't in a position to, to, uh, to, to do what maybe I, I said the other day. But yes, I have been talking with Michael Thurman, who I think is a great, he's a historian in his own right. This is, this is the CEO of DeKalb CEO County. CEO of DeKalb County. You know, I, as the commissioner of economic development, which I served for three years prior to this, tourism is a $70 billion a year industry. Stone Mountain's the biggest tourism uh, attraction in the Southeast, and I'm a DeKalb County resident as well. But have talked to Michael about this, and, and he has talked about history by addition as well. So that was a link that we certainly had there. Uh, and I talked with uh, Bill Stevens as well. But, uh, you know, again, who, who whatever. Runs can, the park who runs or the, the park. corporation that runs the park for the state, essentially. That's or right. With a license from the state, I guess is a better way to say it. That's right. But I, I th the big thing to me, though, and the most important concept truly is history by addition, not history by subtraction and deletion. And I know that's been a big conversation around the state. It's been a big uh, conversation, uh, you know, around the country. But to me, that as a historian, as somebody that loves history, that to me, let's learn more. Let's talk more. Let's teach. Let's talk with each other. I think that's the best. Let me, and you're you're not talking about just leaving leaving it with the bell tower. You're talking. Any, but history more. in general. Right. I just mm -hmm. am a believer that fact-based history makes us richer. Jim, let me just get you in here real, real quickly because you were really the first one to report on this plan to put a bell tower on top of Stone Mountain. You'd talked to Mike Thurmond about it. Mike was on the show the other day with Sam Olin, so you had a Democrat and a Republican both saying they were thrilled that, that Chris's Carr predecessor. did that. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, but, but it evaporated because at the time, Thurman was the only African American on the Stone Mountain board, and the and and Bill Steep. No, oh, no, this no, was no. before he, this was, he was on the, the board. The, the, the Stone Mountain board was all white. Okay, and and the idea was was proposed by Bill Stevens himself, right, a former Republican state senator. Okay, so this was before Thurman took his place on the board, but it evaporated. The right. board did not want to move forward. Right, right. Uh, there is a, by statute, uh, Stone Mountain is is to serve as a as a memorial for for the Confederacy. The question is. Is that the only thing that it can be? That it can be, Andra. So there's a lot to think about here. So first, Attorney General Carr, I just want to, you know, just say that I respect your decision to come out and speak so publicly about this. I think there are other things that we want to take in mind. So sort of, I want to sort of state my priors here. I grew up right outside of Richmond, Virginia. So Virginia has more Confederate memorials and monuments than Georgia does, and more than any other state in the union. And I grew up with Monument Avenue. So I am inured to seeing Confederate monuments, yeah. and even as I've started to study them. 
as an academic, I start finding them in weird places in Richmond, in places that I didn't expect or things that I took for granted. So I think it's really important. I certainly believe in history by addition. I don't want people to forget what happened here. Um, and this should be a part of our American history. My feelings about monuments started to, I guess, change or shift a little bit after Charlottesville, which is another place where I spent times where I spent my undergraduate years in a place that I have a strong connection to. Um, and when I think people are talking about removing um, Confederate monuments, if they're doing so for the sake of glossing over the Civil War and the antebellum period, yeah, I would agree with you that we're wrong about that. But we also have to be really careful about how we do history by addition. And I think part of it is to recognize that the reason why we have so many Confederate monuments in the U.S. in the first place is that they started to emerge in the early 20th century, oftentimes sort of in coinciding with the uh, resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan mm -hmm. and talking about sort of, you know, basically sort of espousing the language of the lost cause because they were trying to rewrite history. And if that's the history that we're adding so that we can sort of say, look, this is what people put up in a certain time in a certain place. Here is what they did and what their motivations were behind it. All right. Was this right? And to explain why it's wrong, then I think that history by addition is actually a really good thing. But if we don't actually confront the lost cause narrative, which is still very apparent. And so in my home state, we now know that there are people who in the 80s thought that blackface was OK. Right. And there's now national polling data that would suggest that about 30 percent of people still don't see a problem with donning blackface. So there's still all of these narratives that we have to unwind. And so I think to the extent that adding allows us to fix sort of the wrongs of the historical past in terms of our interpretation of it, I say go for it. Chris? That's a great point. Fact-based history. That means the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent. If, adding if, to it. If, to if, me, I, if I could jump in here just to, to elaborate on what Andre said, and, and Stone Mountain is a perfect example. Okay, you've got this huge bas-relief carving of of two generals and the president of the Confederacy, right? Okay, and it says one thing, and you've had Stacey Abrams call it a, a that they sh uh, say they, they shouldn't be in that place of honor. Right, she okay. actually wanted it right. removed okay. early in her campaign. All right, but nowhere on nowhere in the park, nowhere in, in around the mountain, is there any public notice that Stone Mountain in 1915 yeah. became the birthplace of the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. The cross was burned on top of that mountain, and that's what that's why King mentioned it. He wasn't mentioning Stone Mountain as a tourist attraction. Correct. He was mentioning it as the place where the uh, the Klan experienced a yeah, rebirth. Uh, right. Karen, uh, that 1915 date is especially important. Uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons that African Americans have concerns about Stone Mountain and what it stands for today, but so do uh, Jews in Georgia, because the Klan was reborn in the aftermath of the lynching of the Jewish business leader, Leo Frank, uh, in the square in Marietta. And and so this has a resonance and meaning, uh, be, certainly beyond the African-American uh, community. Right. And as a historian has once stated that what is memorialized and that is what is left to popular memory, they're not put there accidentally. There is a reason why they were put up mm -hmm. as a public commemoration. And Stone Mountain has a rich history. But to add to the conversation here, I think that we can't erase these histories simply by removing something off of that pub that publicly reminds us, and that we have to keep the past in our direct conversations of today and the present. So we can't just add simply, but it's the full richness of, of talking about that history in detail so given, and encompassing everyone's dialogue in that. Given all that, Chris, you didn't start this uh, just to make a speech. I assume you see a direction here. 
where are we headed and how are you going to be involved or do you want to be involved in the next steps of this? Give us a sense of where we're going. I'd be happy to. I, I did it because I care about it. I care yeah. about my state. I care about history. I care about uh, conversations that are constructive. I mean, that, that's kind of, again, I, I go back to what I know. I know Johnny Isaacson and the world I came from with him and how he's always tried to be a constructive voice. I felt the same way, you know, about Governor Deal and being at economic development. You had to bring everybody to the table in order to be successful. If, if, and I, I care and I'm passionate about history. So if I can be constructive, I'm happy to do it. I am also, I recognize that there are boards and there are folks that need to, would have to be a part of it as well. And absolutely, I'm very respectful of that. But, but, if but I do you want to be involved means. as a leader of, 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 a, of a, say, a group, a movement, however you want to describe it, to talk to that board and say, now is the time for you to act? I stand ready to help anyway. Somebody sees fit, and if I see an opportunity, I'm happy to do it. I think see, there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very materialistic problem that's developing here. Uh, are, are, you, are you familiar with the town of uh, Pulaski, Tennessee? Sure, of course. Of course. That's the town where the, where the first the first clan. clan was born. It has become something of a shrine of, uh, among white supremacists. And because it's a town... They can't do anything about it. You're free to walk through the streets. That's exactly what they don't want to happen in Stone Mountain. And if you, you know, if you put that other history up there that explains why that, that, that carving is up on the side of the mountain, then that carving becomes something else. It becomes something other than a, sh a shrine. Okay, but, but again, we, this, this conversation is a really interesting one and an important one, but where is it headed? Well, what are you hearing as a journalist? Uh, what, well, it's this? what I'm waiting for. Uh, I'm waiting for some sign from the Stone Mountain Association Board, Memorial Association Board, uh, that it, 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 is, it does take this uh, project seriously. And I think they're going to be looking for some sort of signal from Governor Kemp. Have you talked to the governor about this? I have not at all. And, and I'm respectful he, of his position. I know this is something that, uh, that, that you know, I'm, I, I think Governor Kemp is a very reasonable, level-headed guy, and I'm very excited to see him take the lead uh, in the state. I will say this, the response that I've gotten has been very, very, mm. very positive as far as history by addition, and that's where, fact-based, fact-based, I think that's where folks, you know, 80% of people want to have a constructive conversation in a fact-based way. I'm sure there are other folks out there that disagree with me, and maybe they're not reaching out to me. But I'll tell you what, there's, the response has been very positive about, hey, that's the right way to go forward. So you're saying, come on in, the water's fine? I, I Look, I, I did this based on what I wanted to do. I'll let, let other people do it as well. But I'll tell you, I think it's important for our state. But I think that we still have to open ourselves to the possibility that there's sometimes that history by addition might actually involve some destruction. Yeah. So especially if there are towns that don't want them like Decatur anymore. Um, and then also where it looks like we're not 100% sure what the value was and what's the value added of putting up a sign everywhere that says, yes, people put this up 100 years ago. Wow, their motives were really messed up. Um, the, you know, the art historian Kirk Savage kind of turned me on to the fact that part of the reason why there's so many um, uh, statues of Robert E. Lee was because he sort of became the sex symbol for the daughters of the Confederacy in the late 19th century. And so the question is, well, what is the historic value of always having these things up um, and, and, and having them in certain types of places? So, there, so I think they're probably, it's going to be really hard to sort of remove all types of Confederate iconography from everywhere in the South just because they are so pervasive. But sometimes it might be in honor of that history that we sometimes have to say, 
say, you know what, this probably doesn't have a place in our society anymore. And so I think we have to sort of open ourselves up to having that type you of thing. You know what's interesting about this, Karen, to me? It, it, it's funny, the, the timing on your announcement and what happened Super Bowl weekend. I mean, you didn't, you didn't respond to the Super Bowl weekend. You were, I think you'd already made your statement about this before no, then. No, it was, it was the week. I think we talked right after it. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. all right. So, so Modern Park had to close on Super Bowl Saturday because of a concern that there might be a white supremacist group clashing with an Antifa group. Uh, I mean, so Modern has become such a powerful symbol on both sides that one of the state's most important tourist attractions had to shut down. It struck me, Karen, that that was a remarkable indication of how terribly uh, painful the history of this place is. It is, and it's very sad that on a weekend when Atlanta was trying to shine as a very special place, we've had a large uh, historical site closed. And it, it brings attention to the issue, but it also says that there can be a positive that can come from this if the next step is to put a new marker, like a bell tower there, that can speak to the positives of change that could come, as long as the messaging is right and there are more people at the table having that conversation. And we're going to have to fix our educational system, right? We have had teachers, sometimes serving as state legislators, who are still passing old uh, revisionist mm. history oft as fact. Yeah. And so there are lots of people who are severely misinformed yeah. about lots of things related to the Civil War and Reconstruction and its aftermath in the Civil Rights Movement. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, uh, Chris Carr, you were, you, had, you were in the news this week again uh, in, another, in, in, in another story. Uh, you have filed what I believe is the first criminal uh, a complaint against a, an official, in this case, the city of Atlanta's press secretary to Kasim Reed, Jenna Garland, for violation of the Open Records Act. Tell That's us right. about what she what she's alleged to have done and why you decided to file a criminal information. Well, that's right, Bill. And, and, and it just as a reminder, it is an ongoing case. So I've got to be careful in, as far as discussing that. But it is the first uh, criminal charges in the open uh, for a violation of the Open Records Act in, in state history. Uh, and, and a couple things I'd like to say. One is we have the law. It has to mean something. It has to have teeth. And we are willing to do what we did in this particular case if other facts are presented to us down the road. That's number one. Number two, I do think it needs to be a, a, a message that we do take this seriously. Look, the only way that you can hold elected officials accountable is through access to documents and meetings. And I truly, this, it sounds again a little bit hokey or whatever it may be, but I believe that records that government possesses are not government records. They're held in trust for the people. I feel the same way about open meetings. And if you believe that, then the, the public has to have access. There have been frustrations, I know, in the past from journalists. There have been frustrations in the past from citizens to be able to get access to their documents. It has, if the law is going to be on the books, it has to mean something. Now, I would prefer we never get to that point. I'd prefer that, you know, our office does a lot of training. We have the mediation program. I'd rather us talk, you know, and, and prevent it on the front end. But if the facts take us to the conclusion, we'll, we'll do this again. This is sure. a misdemeanor we'll violation. Misdemeanor violation. It, nevertheless, the charge is there. You know, uh, Karen, this was about as egregious as you could get. If you look, as, as certainly uh, Chris Carr's uh, lawyers and he himself have, uh, the messages that Jenna uh, said, and we should back this up. This was a result 
the Atlanta Constitution and WSB-TV sought records that pertain, do you remember this? To, to the, uh, I think to the water bills of... That's of, right. Uh, it was from, they wanted stuff from watershed right. management, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. And Jenna Garland was communicating by text to the watershed people saying, delay this as long as possible, don't help them. I don't think you can get much more egregious than that. No, and I think <clears throat> it's, you know, taking responsibility for your what your role is as a public administrator, whether that's a press secretary or managing and directing a department, you are under the law to, if a request comes in, to provide in, if I'm speaking right, it's three days they have to respond to the request or provide those records. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to stall it or delay it, that does not help the public have trust in their agencies, and this is a mechanism for politically che checking our leaders, and that we have to make sure is ensured. Let me ask you, Chris, is, 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 as I recall, the, and you, you, you said the open records uh, law needed teeth, and, and, and as I recall, the, the teeth were put in back in 2012. 2012, what, right. what, what was the what, what was the reason that so that was added? We, we should say real quick that at the end of our show on Wednesday, Sam Olins turned to me and said, you know, I was the AG who put the teeth <laughs> into that law. Well, and, and Sam may have been, he'd be probably be better to answer that, but quite frankly, because because I think that folks felt that there weren't, it wasn't, there wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. And so this was, this is something, and it's a misdemeanor. And, and quite frankly, I wouldn't want to be a charge with a misdemeanor. Most people wouldn't want to. So I think that's basically, Jim, where some behavior was so egregious that you could be charged with a criminal, which I think shows the state's um, seriousness as far as it does relate to transparency mm -hmm. and openness of government. That's my take on it, but I'm, I could be wrong. Well, I have a question, but before I have the question, I also think it's really important for those of us who do research on government. Yeah. Sometimes we need uh, government records. It is super frustrating when people don't give it to you, especially when there really isn't a good reason for this to happen. So, you know, it's not just transparency, but it's also transparency that will actually allow um, itself to be examined in, in empirical and really systematic ways that I think is important. I think the question that I would have for you, um, Attorney General Carr, is, is whether or not you intend to use this again. So, I, you know, I know that there aren't other cases, but but is this something that will be sort of like a regular part of your toolkit? Or, you know, are you hoping that you can make an example of this and that this is hmm. going to be a lesson to other people to not go forward? If the facts take us to that conclusion, I won't hesitate. Hmm. I won't hesitate. You know, but here, let me say, I've, I saw this from an agency perspective at economic development. I mean, we do it now as well. But uh, there was a, a, an exception for us as we were working through business deals. And there's a legitimate reason. You don't want your competitor filing open records request to see what you're doing. But I took it very seriously. And, yes, yeah, sometimes you get a lot of requests. And sometimes it's difficult. But that's what the law requires. And we had five days from the date of the conclusion of the project or we were successful to put that information on, on, the, uh, uh, on the Internet or on the on our website, and we did it, and and so I, I, I understand it as well as anybody. We've uh, that, but that's part of being a part of, of the government so, process. So, Chris, um, a couple questions about that. Uh, the General Assembly is exempt from the Open Records Law. They voted themselves exempt. Should they be? <laughs> Bill, I defer to the enlightened conscience of the legislature on that issue. Look, it's a separation of powers issue. They've done what they've done. That's the, the, it, my job is to enforce the laws that are passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, and that's how we have it. And I, but I am a believer in separation of powers. I mean, the judiciary's got their own set of rules, and we do as well. But um, it, it, it goes back. I, I think that there is a philosophical point 
either you believe these are the people's documents or not. Right. And I think that's mm -hmm. the, and I'll say this too, we do a lot of training. Uh, Jennifer Colangelo in our office is fantastic, does training all around the state. I don't think most people are malicious. I think a lot of people don't understand what the process is. That's part of our mm -hmm. job. And you do have three days to give a timeline, then it's got to be reasonable and folks would have to pay. So I have to know, say, for, um, Karen, uh, and I speak for on your behalf too, if you don't mind, um, at a moment where we are being accused of being fake news, all of us who are journalists, enemies of the people, uh, the fact that the state of Georgia, through their attorney general, has now said, no, no, you have a role to play as well, and we believe that we should be supportive of that role. I have to say, as a journalist of 40 years, I was really grateful that we're heading in that direction and that the uh, AG's office is going to take this on. Well, it's important because we, as American citizens, anyone here needs to know what our public officials are doing. And so if the journalists are asking for questions, even if we are as researchers or just trying to find out what's happening, we need to have access to that and have some type of, of timeline. I will say, though, as a staffer, for a member of Congress, when I was handed my telephone and my pager at that time, Blackberry, I believe it was, it was 100 years ago, I was told, everything on this is a public record. Yeah. So remember that and be careful in the fact that, you know, if it, your mom's going to read it sometime, you know, or anyone can. So what you're sending should be appropriate business, right? Yeah, and, and look, there's 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 a, a a good bit of tragedy in this because I mean, you and I know know, know Jenna yeah, Garland. Of course, I mean she, she is she is she is a, a a very nice person, but at some point in your career, and it's happened to you, it's happened to me, probably happened to everybody <laughs> here. You have to tell your boss no. There, you have to draw a line and protect your own self. And yeah, and I think every one of us in this panel know that Kasim Reed was not an easy guy to say. No, you know, no he was to. not. He was not. But <laughs> but here here we have an example of the consequences of when you don't say no yeah. to your boss. Yeah. And Last also, word from you before we take a break. I'm one, afraid. and it's also being sloppy about it. So I think yeah. back to Karen's point, being sloppy about it um, in terms putting of like, something putting invited. something in writing <laughs> on your phone. Yeah. Well, the, uh, <laughs> yes, they were, there was also an arrogance. Those texts revealed that, uh, again, Jenna, nice human being, they felt very smug about their position and the way those texts went back and forth and the kind of attitude that yeah. was... Exp All right. Uh, I do have to ask one last very quick question. Uh, you're the former economic development chief of the state of Georgia. So Amazon's not going to go to New York, Chris. <laughs> what the heck? Is it time for, for Atlanta to step back up again? Just give us a couple of minutes from your you know, perspective. Oh, no, what, well, without, but I'll, if you are going to put a headquarters anywhere in North America, you've yeah. got to look at Atlanta, Georgia, particularly if you're a tech-based company. I'll say that. All right. <laughs> are you aware of them starting no, to? Not a thing. All right. I, I just thought no, I'd, as long as we had you, I'd ask No, we've got a great commissioner of economic development and Pat Wilson, and the governor is at the lead. So Governor Kemp and Pat will. All right. All right. Thanks for that. All right. Let's do this. Let's get a quick break out of the way. We'll come back in just a minute with a lot more to talk about on today's Rewind. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR 
or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Who are the people whose names you see at the end of a movie or a TV show? I'm Kalina Bowler. I've worked for years behind the scenes in Georgia's booming film industry. In my GPB podcast, I meet the people who help bring art to life, from actors to stuntmen to camera operators. Join me for the credits. Subscribe at thecreditspodcast.com. Glad to have you back with us for Political Rewind. Uh, Jim Galloway is here, Karen Owen from West Georgia University. I should have mentioned what your experience on the Hill. You worked for? Uh, then Congressman Nathan Deal. Right. Former Governor Nathan Deal. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. okay. Andre Gillespie uh, is with us, and the Attorney General of the state of Georgia, Chris Carr, is here as well. Um, Jim, let's talk just briefly. Uh, on Wednesday, we just began to get on the Wednesday show the little first glimmers, the headlines about what uh, Governor Kemp was proposing in terms of the waivers he was going after for Medicaid. And it appears it's conceivable, although that not necessarily uh, certain, that he may go a little further than he did on the campaign, what he said on the campaign trail to expand Medicaid. You did a, a, a column the other day in which you gave the credit to that for, uh, for that to the business community. Talk about that. Oh, right, right. Specifically to the, the Georgia Chamber. Look, if you if you look at specifically what, what Governor Kemp has pitched in terms of, of the, the law that, that's been presented through, uh, through the Senate, uh, then yeah, he's he has made no choice. He is he has given himself all the options in the world. He can do nothing if he chooses so so chooses. If you look at what else is on the table right now, uh, the the certificate of need debate that governs when where where hospitals uh, and other healthcare institutions shall be mm-hmm. built, that's on the table. That's going. You can't get that passed without something like an expansion of Medicaid. Uh, and this, and why? Because of the trade-off? Because there's a, there's a, yeah. If, if okay. you, you've got, you've got the hospitals, uh, hospitals saying, if you're going to, if you're going to subject us to intense competition, you've got to give us something more to handle the indigent. With. Gotcha. And what, what's what's happened since two, say since 2015. This started in 2015. Uh, the, 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 the chamber hired uh, 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 Deloitte and a couple of uh, ex-deal staffers, Brian Robinson, who, who we have on the staff here, and then uh, and Blake... Full and wider. Full and wider. Thank you very much. Blake Full and wider, who, is, who, is, who had been the deputy ch- uh, chief in charge of Medicaid in Georgia, okay? And they spent a year at this. And the report they came out with says, if you don't do anything... If we if we don't expand Medicaid or do anything to increase health care coverage in Georgia by 2026, you're going to have a million people yeah. without health care, 25 yeah. percent of the adult population. Yeah, yeah, but this, the, so what I'm struggling with here uh, is it's still very difficult. And, you know, I think the governor's people, I have to say that since he's gone into office, uh, they've been they've been pretty communicative with us. They're willing to talk with us. But I'm not sure. Even when they do, I understand exactly, specifically in the Medicaid issue, there seems to be an avoidance to some extent of telling us how far they're willing to go, Andra, because we don't know at this point. 
Well, I mean, I think the political risk is going so far as to basically concede the health care debate to Democrats. And I think that that's what they're trying to avoid yeah. doing. So a lot of this seems to be very semantic. Um, so in terms of, you know, trying to figure out what's the difference between a Medicaid waiver and Medicaid expansion, as was proposed by Stacey Abrams and other Democrats, the difference seems to be the copay um, that's involved. And so so it's like Medicaid expansion with a copay that won't cover as many people. OK, then. So, um, you know, I think it... Governor Kemp doesn't want to look like he's capitulated to Democrats on this particular issue. So it's a way for him perhaps partially to triangulate. But he could also justify this decision based on the feedback that we got from the 2018 election. And so if you look at public opinion data that the AJC collected, health care was the top issue. And so if health care is the chief concern amongst Georgia voters, then you have to figure out yes, a way to address it. I get that. But, Karen, you cannot take if one of the arguments is, aside from the welfare of the state, let's give them let's give everybody the fact that care about the welfare of the state. But if one of the arguments that is being made is that Republicans want to take an issue away from Democrats in the 2020 election cycle, then you've actually got to do something significant to take the issue away from them. And we still really don't know much. I, I get that they're going to have a study done. They're going to bring in consultants. But they seem very reluctant to go very far down the road in terms of talking about expansion. Well, I think they have to come up with what their idea of expansion really is. That's not the democratic message of expansion. And so they're they're looking at what those possible ways are. And I think really what, you know, stemming from the business community wanting to look at health care for the state. I mean, they've got to be innovative in whatever they type this as, whether it's mm -hmm. expansion or the waiver. And it has to cover more Georgians at a less cost. Let me, let me ask you, Chris. I mean, you, you just finished your first statewide election. Have you sensed any kind of shift in the electorate on, 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 the, on the issue of, of the ACA, Medicaid expansion? That was not anything that was a big deal that I heard a lot about. It was kind of uh, once the the lawsuit, you know, had a, a little bit of movement in it, then I started hearing more about that issue. But prior to that, you know, it wasn't. And, and the lawsuit that we have, have joined this, uh, that involves the ACA. Right. This is the so, Texas so when, suit. Right. There was a yeah. Texas suit that right. we uh, challenged the constitutionality of. After that, then it kind of picked up as far as I'm concerned. But I think there were a bucket of issues. What I will say, again, former economic development, I want to commend the governor and I want to commend uh, the leadership and uh, you know, Lieutenant Governor Duncan and, and Speaker Ralston uh, for taking this on uh, to find ways to tackle two different issues. One is cost and innovation. There's no doubt that cost has gone up. And, it, you know, and, and, and number two, you've got to find new ways uh, for coverage. I think it is interesting from a coverage perspective Back in 2006 and 2007, my former boss, Johnny Isaacson, a former realtor, Republicans were trying to push the concept of, of association health care plans, allow realtors or plumbers or electricians to come together. And we were stymied every step of the way back then. So, you know, to be able to see new thought, new approach, uh, I, commend, I commend the leadership for so taking it on. So you mentioned the lawsuit. Right. Uh, which was filed by, I mean, 16, how many attorneys general across uh, the country? There were, 16, something like that? No, I think 14. Others. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and, and part of that, that, that lawsuit to some extent was about, uh, ACA and pre-existing conditions. And your ears were probably burning on several occasions when you weren't listening to Political Rewind, <laughs> because the question that the panel raised on a couple of occasions was, uh, do you feel that in, when you filed that lawsuit at a time when there was a feeling that maybe ACA wasn't, when the Congress was still looking at overturning and all that, that at least from a political point of view, 
The timing may have been better then. Has this issue moved past you? And now, would you rethink whether that lawsuit, which could undermine ACA, was a good thing to file today, given the public's apparent shift in their attitudes about Obamacare? No, I would. And let me tell you why. The law is unconstitutional, and it didn't have anything to do with pre-existing conditions. That made for a great campaign uh, speech. That made for a great bumper sticker. Here, the bottom line uh, bill is this: Back in in 2012, when the first lawsuit came, uh, the first lawsuits mm-hmm. were filed. Chief Justice Roberts, in essence, said, "This is constitutional because of the taxing authority." Mm-hmm. Fast forward to December of 2017, and then the Trump administration signs the bill that did away with the tax. Mm-hmm. The law is simply no longer constitutional. That doesn't speak to anything about access to health care or quality health care. We're all for that in pre-existing conditions. I have yet to meet an American. I've yet to meet a Georgian. I myself are in favor of covering. I have a nephew that has full body alopecia. I've got a niece uh, who uh, has Down syndrome and has a brain tumor. Or not a niece, but a cousin. Everybody needs access to pre-existing conditions. It's very, very popular. It was never about that. It was about the uh, constitutionality of the law. And that's what lawyers do. Now, if it is declared unconstitutional, it gives us a chance to go back and do it better, more choice, more access, lower cost, more competition, including pre-existing conditions, maybe association health care plans, but Congress, the states, and the private sector would then have to come together. But the, the law is simply unconstitutional, and I, I believe it. I cannot wait to see Congress go back and debate a new health care bill oh, all yes. over again. <laughs> Didn't say it was going to be easy. Didn't say it was going to be easy. No, I understand. But that's what, at the end of the day, that's what happened. And, yeah. and Chief Justice Roberts said, this is the one leg of the stool. And that leg's no longer there. The bill is just, and, and, and let's be clear, though, 90% of all Americans have health care coverage that cover pre-existing conditions. It's 10% that don't, which we need to make sure have the best coverage possible. What's the status of the suit at this point? Uh, it is, uh, uh, filed, they filed an appeal at the Fifth Circuit, so we're waiting for Fifth Circuit to mm-hmm. take that up. Okay. Um, let's talk just for a minute about Morseford Bridge. Uh, it, it, because a federal appeals court has now ordered the release of transcripts from the secret grand jury uh, uh, proceedings in 19, I, I don't know, the grand jury may have started in 47, I don't mm-hmm. really know when. 1946, two African-American couples out in uh, Walton County. There was a, a dispute with a farmer who owned land that at least one of them worked on. It got violent. I think there may have been an actual stabbing at one point. I'm not quite sure about this. Nevertheless, two couples murdered at Moore's Ford Bridge. Uh, it was perhaps the last lynchings in the state of Georgia, 1946. 1946 co- coincides with a, with a a race for governor that involved G- Eugene, Gene, Talmadge. Eugene Talmadge. Uh, you have, I've seen, uh, there's been one book that's come out recently that addresses the, the, the atmosphere around it. It was a book that Chuck Bullock did over at University of Georgia mm-hmm. that, that, that drew on FBI reports uh, from from investigations of Georgia and Georgians of the time. I mean, and and it went through. Uh, it, it was uh, it was an investigation into voter suppression, if you will. Well, it, it, your colleague uh, Greg Bluestein, while he was at the Associated Press back in 2007, actually uh, got a hold of FBI records 
And that showed, by the way, th through a Freedom of Information request with the federal government, that showed uh, that the FBI was investigating whether Gene Talmadge is a candidate for governor was in fact complicit in the murders to stir up racial unrest in Walton County because he wanted to win the county, which he did, by the way. Um, you talk about Stone Mountain and a bell tower. Uh, here is history much more recent where we have got to find resolutions. We, have, we can't allow this stuff to simmer under the surface. So you want to honor the victims' families and give them yeah. resolution that they need. But I think this is also an illustration of how race and racism sort of permeates the fabric of American society and how it's not just sort of, you know, a bunch of, you know, you know, uneducated kind of kooks running around and kind of going rogue, that this was actually supported to, like, the upper sort of echelons of, you know, our, our societies, of our government. There were people who were directly implicated in these things. And that's hard history. And people aren't trying to dredge it up just so that you can throw it back in people's faces. But you're, we dredge this up so that we can deal with it and, as opposed to pretending that it didn't exist or it didn't happen. Um, Chris, just as, as a lawyer, if, if, you're, if you're a judge trying to decide whether to unseal a grand jury report, what's, what's, what's the thought process? What's the legal process there? It, I, I honestly would not know exactly what all they're going through. But I think the professor has hit the nail on the head as far as practical concerns, as far as the family members and that. But, I mean, look, again, this goes back to my idea about history by addition. We need to know, Yeah, seems to me. Yeah, uh, there were never arrests in the case. Uh, we think we have a pretty clear, or the investigators did a pretty clear uh, understanding of who one of the, the uh, shooters was. But we, we really don't have enough information. Um, and, Karen, so actually, it's now up to the Justice Department. The appeals court has already said these documents should be released. Uh, the Justice Department has to decide whether to comply with that order or to continue appealing it. Well, and I think it goes back to the families and the victims. I mean, they have a right to know what was discussed, what was there. And, you know, the Justice Department, of course, has to weigh in what's appropriate to be released. But interesting about the political part at the time, which I don't think um, we can forget, is that Georgia operated at that time under the county unit system. Mm. And so it was important for our leaders to be winning counties. And the worst part is they were doing that in negative ways to ensure they won a whole entire county, which is different now since we've had had one man, one vote. And that vote matters, that people's votes are counted where they are. And I think that's part of that storytelling too. Yeah, it great, needs to be great perspective. Uh, I've just and been this is why I'm for history by edition. We've just been told we got to get uh, our, our final break of the show out of the way. Uh, we'll do it quick because there's two, at least two big stories I want to get to after this. Why does soap feel slippery while honey feels sticky? What's the difference between oily jet fuel and the olive oil on your salad? I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, a tour of the differences in the fabulous fluids that make up our lives. Plus how climate change is slowly seeping into your everyday life, like your flooded parking lot. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This afternoon at 3 on GPB. With scandals swirling around Virginia's top three officials over blackface and sexual assault, many say this moment signals a need for new voices in the party. I really think it's an important time to amplify the voices of black women because we have the perspective. I'm Audie Cornish. Virginia Democrats wrestle with how to move forward this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Four till seven this afternoon on GPB and gpbnews.org.
Karen Owen, Jim Galloway's newspaper overnight, along with WSB-TV, Channel 2, which has just found a new owner, Apollo Global Media or something like that. With, with Cox maintaining a minority stake. A little stake. part, yeah, yeah. Uh, they broke a huge, huge, potentially huge story uh, over the last 24 hours. The contention of the story is that David Ralston, who of course practices law, uh, has over the years taken advantage of uh, some statutory provisions which allow him to delay cases based on the work that he has to do in the legislature. But the Constitution and, and Channel 2 uh, talk about the fact that in some cases clients of his are people with who have been accused of some pretty heinous crimes. Uh, women be, beating women, uh, uh, for example, was the lead mm -hmm. in, their, in their story. Um, and there are questions now as to whether Ralston was taking and, and by delaying the cases in what this in, in one particular instance for like a decade, the feeling is that uh, perhaps by the that by that time a case goes cold, you can't bring a victim to a, a, a an offender to justice. It's a really, really uh, uh, big story. We'll see how it plays out. Right, and I think we have to. To look at this is the state of Georgia is a citizen part-time legislature. So our members in the House and Senate, many of them have got to maintain some other professional career to sustain their livelihood. And so, you know, Ralston as a practicing attorney has that other position. Many attorneys are also trying to manage their law practices and serve in the legislature. And so they have to balance that out. For some of them, this, the statute allows them to have these continuances and delay so that they can work on those cases when they're not in session. I think in this situation, you know, the speaker has to be mindful that his responsibility is more than sometimes just the state rep. He has a lot of other engagements he has to be involved in. And so he may have to think about what that means. I mean, for these victims and families, it's very tough on them to be dealing with a situation where your attorneys are not there. And I will just have to say, though, that the last point here is we don't want to jump and make changes quickly because we don't want to discourage attorneys from wanting to be serving in our legislature. Okay, we but, need but let's be careful because I, I hear that. Mm. That's probably what the Speaker's office will eventually <laughs> uh, speak about. But 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 what your story, your your paper story reports, is that Ralston took advantage of it. Essentially, the clients were paying him to delay their cases for as long as possible. The, 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 the disturbing parts of this, there, there are several. And number one, you do have a client who specifically said, I gave $20,000 as a retainer to this, the, to this attorney specifically because he had the power to delay the case yeah. as, as long as, 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 as longer than anybody else. Uh, uh, the other part of that is that there, we've, we have some, we, we do have some some cases where where lawyer lawyer legislators are involved in in, in delays. Th these are specifically criminal cases yes. delays, and that's that's bothersome. The other part of that is some there there is a there is a a big question of whether the judicial system up in North Georgia is complicit mm -hmm. in this uh, because. Because I, I and there are people who can contradict me, but I, I I think that there are ways that a judge can force an issue if if a, d a delay becomes too long. So um, 
you know, I know Attorney General Carr can't speak about this, and so I respect that. I wish I had a law degree. I think this point is really important, and I think the question to ask here is, why doesn't a judge call Speaker Ralston's bluff? Yeah. Um, you know, so it seems in those cases, if you have perpetual sort of requests for continuations, then the judge should be trying to figure out, well, I know that you don't have a meeting here, so we're going to schedule it for this. And, you know, if you need me to call the governor to get you a pass out of a meeting or to get him to reschedule it for another time, we can see this happening. Um, the analogy that I think of was when I was in graduate school in Connecticut. Uh, if I got called to jury duty during the school year, Connecticut law actually allowed me to delay my summons for jury duty. But it had to have been during the summer when school was in session. So if I got a jury duty like call in the summer, there was no way of getting around it. Now, as far as I know, I haven't tried that one in Georgia, but like, you know, I don't think I'm allowed to do that here. But a similar type of thing could be had there. Like there are reasonable continuances and then there are unreasonable continuances. And sort of the story suggests that these might be unreasonable. And I think a judge has some discretion to be able to step in and say, no, not on this one. So, I think, well, I was just going to say, the, the judges probably do have discretion to call them in, but yet their budgets are set by the legislature. So the judges are getting paid from the state. So at what point do you want to ruffle the feathers of somebody who might be controlling your salary? But I mean, I think that's going back to a, a separation of powers as well kind of discussion. So Paul Jason Brothers accused of rape, statutory rape, two counts of aggravated child molestation and other mm -hmm. molestations has had his case uh, delayed starting as long ago as 2014, still continued today. Now, criminal cases can take a long time to work their way through the courts, but we don't, and I'm not clear from the reporting what state of, stage this uh, case is in at this point, whether it's not moved at all since uh, Ralston became this guy's attorney, and there are others uh, in the story there's, like that. There's, there's a larger political question here, and this is, of course, you know, I mean, this is, this is, well, we don't know what's going to happen next, whether there will be a formal complaint against uh, uh, Ralston lodged by, uh, by the state, uh, within the state bar machination, whether uh, whether the, the judicial system will get involved. But you have to also look at, 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 at the position that Ralston holds within the state capitol. Right now, he is, he is by far the mo most experienced leader in, in, in the building right now, given that Kemp is new on the job and so is Jeff Duncan. Uh, he is also very important to, to, uh, to uh, the, the Metro Atlanta and the business community is kind of the moderating voice right now. Uh, when it comes when it comes to uh, uh, tamping down some of the excesses of the legislature, right. when I, when Andre Galloway pointed out that this is such a big story that not a single legislator, Democrat or Republican, has commented down at the Capitol since it broke yesterday after late yesterday afternoon or last night. I mean, and it's probably one because you want to get more sort of facts before you actually weigh in on the case. Two, I, I recognize Jim's yeah. point about yes. the political considerations <laughs> right. about getting rid of the moderating voice in the legislature. Right. The third thing is is that this is a business matter. And so this is in part about how Ralston conducts his business. And I don't know anything about his law firm, but if I were a judge and I were in a really punchy mood, I would tell him you need a second chair. Like, so if you don't have associates in your firm, maybe you should get some. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, uh, Karen, one of the interesting things about this, doving, dovetailing back to an earlier conversation, AJC and Channel 2 wanted to look at the speaker's calendar uh, scheduler to see what the conflicts were. And guess what? They're not He's subject to open records. records. <laughs> Couldn't get access to those. <laughs> all right. Uh, we're going to watch that very closely in the weeks ahead. It could be a, a very important story for all of us. Finally, uh, uh, Chris, I'm going to start with you. Congress has now passed 
the compromise bill that gives uh, President Trump like million, a billion three or so. He's now declared a national emergency. All of that has been covered extensively by national media. Um, what hasn't gotten any national attention, and there's a good reason why it hasn't, it's a Georgia story, is that the compromise doesn't give South Georgia farmers any of the relief money. There is some emergency relief money in the budget, but they need billions. And there are some Georgia congressmen who are really angry today that they've been ignored. There are. Well, I think everybody across the board is frustrated that the disaster money wasn't there. And, and I'll tell you, you know, I was down there after Michael. I, I, I think I don't think people really realize the devastation that occurred, mm -hmm. the devastation to lives. The, you know, a, a lot of the pecan orchards, they're just trees laying down. That's generational. So I know there's great frustration even from those that voted for the bill. And I know there's going to be a big push to go back and address disaster funding, and, and I suspect that our delegation across the board will be at the, at the forefront. Well, I certainly hope that Congress goes back and does a special disaster relief bill. Um, I mean, one of the things that's actually sort of really important is that, you know, according to the news sources, um, there were sort of anonymous sources that say that part of the reason why disaster funding didn't end up in this in, in this spending bill was because people were still getting tripped up about Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. And mm -hmm. so, you know what, it's not just Puerto Rico. There are lots of things that are being um, included in this. And sort of, I don't know what the sort of hesitancy and sort of antipathy towards Puerto Rico is in this. So if we're going to be paternalistic and have Colonies, then we have to pay for them. You know, right? Jim, and, and then if we're going to pay for them, we got to pay for everybody else, and as opposed to getting tripped up. Jim, it you know we talk a lot in a general way about how Congress, the White House, throughout this process, they've been playing politics, they've been tinkering, they've been confronting one another for no good reason whatsoever in terms of wall funding. You can agree with that or not, but the fact is, here's an example of how people's lives really, really are affected by the inability of these people to figure these things out. Right, right, and and, and it's, it's just, it's, it's baffling. If you, if you live down in South Georgia, you're baffling. You voted for Donald Trump. You know, this is the, this is your guy. He should be able to, he should be able to help you. Uh, and the, the, but the problem, the problem is that, is, is that, uh, I'm not sure that that he was that involved in the specifics of this negotiation. No, the president probably he was, wasn't. He, was he left it to Congress to work this out. Nevertheless, and, and, they didn't. And they dropped it. <laughs> and like like Chris, like Chris, I, I think they've got to come back and get something. Are, the, the, but the, the again, we get back to Puerto Rico. If you can't if you can't help Puerto Rico, Democrats aren't going to let you help places like Georgia. All right, we'll watch how that unfolds. We are out of time uh, for today's show, I'm sorry to say. Uh, by the way, on Tuesday, we're going to have a congressional hearing down here to look at the accusations about uh, voter suppression, voter uh, uh, purges, and that sort of thing. And we'll be reporting on that on Political Rewind uh, throughout uh, the next week. In the meantime, uh, Jim Galloway, Andre Gillespie, Karen Owen, and Attorney General Chris Carr. Really appreciate all of you being here, and we're really glad that you could be on the show today, Chris. Thank Thanks you, for coming. Great to be with you. So that's it uh, for us today. We're going to be back at 2 o'clock on Monday afternoon. My partner, Jim Galloway, will be joining me. So will your colleague, Tamar Hallerman. We think it's time we hear what's going on with those people up in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Something's DC. going on there. <laughs> so for all of you, uh, we'll see you again on Monday at 2. Thanks for being with us for Political Rewind today. Take care.